Welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chantler, and today on the show, Dr. Nina Cook and her guest will be talking about EMDR. Nina, I'm fairly confident that you use EMDR a lot in your practice. Can you tell me about that? I do. I uh, trained in the EMDR, uh, I think it was in 2018, and uh, didn't get into it straight away, but then came back to it maybe a year later. And I've just been building my skills and experience in that time and um, getting more and more out of it as I've gone along. Sounds fantastic. I have to say I'm old enough to remember um, when Francine Shapiro came to Australia back in the 90s. And this EMDR thing was viewed rather suspiciously, if I remember rightly. Um, I remember people hanging off the um, the rafters in, um, I think it was a Jupiter's Casino, if uh, if memory serves me well. And so it did take a little while for EMDR to get some traction um, in the trauma field, but things have changed a great deal, haven't they, over time? Yeah, absolutely. I think even when I trained, you felt a little bit odd saying that that's what you were going to be learning, yeah. practising uh but the evidence base really is there and then when you're using it you just have these um remarkable experiences with your clients that tell you it it is something really important it is really valid um and it's just encouraged me to keep going so i'm imagining that you started off as the protocol requires very pretty rigidly in your practice and then developed it as um, as you became more comfortable can you tell us about that well i think Actually, one of the things that happened that got me back into it was that I did come across some different voices in the EMDR field. And one of them was Dr. Laurel Parnell. Mm. And her attachment-focused EMDR really spoke about adapting the protocol for the client in front of you, being really imaginative and creative and really thoughtful about the client's developmental deficits and how EMDR can be harnessed to really powerfully heal those deficits along with healing uh you know the kind of traumas that we're um more comfortable with using standard protocol emdr um yeah it sounds like a really really interesting conversation that will um i think broaden uh, the horizons of our listeners so hey over to you thanks lisa thanks nina Dr. Laurel Parnell is an internationally recognised clinical psychologist, author, consultant and EMDR trainer. Since 1995, Dr. Parnell has been training therapists in EMDR. She has trained thousands of clinicians in EMDR both in the United States and internationally. She's the author of six books on EMDR, Rewiring the Addicted Brain with EMDR-Based Treatment, Attachment-Focused EMDR, Healing Relational Trauma, a Therapist's Guide to EMDR, Tools and Techniques for Successful Treatment, Tapping In, Transforming Trauma, EMDR, and EMDR in the Treatment of Adults Abused as Children. I came to Dr. Parnell's books a couple of years into my EMDR journey. Her wisdom and compassion for our most vulnerable clients touched my heart, and her practical strategies for building their capacity for healing have really enhanced and enriched my practice. I am so pleased to be joined by Dr. Laurel Parnell on Clinically Thinking. It's lovely to be here. I'd like uh, to find out a little bit more about uh, your journey, if that's okay to start off. I've wondered uh, what brought you to clinical psychology in the first place. Yeah, well, I was an undergraduate. I 
I majored in clinical psychology and psychology, and I've always been fascinated by human human behavior. And also, I'm a longtime Buddhist practitioner and uh, meditator, and and the whole idea of um, understanding how the mind works and and all of that has really been interesting to me. And I was actually both a psychology major and pre med, and um, I wanted to be able to help people all over the world. That was my idea. And as it's turned out with EMDR, I'm actually doing that. I'm able to, with this amazing therapy, help people all over the world. So it's, it's worked out really well. Fantastic. Um, now, our listeners might not all be familiar with EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Could you please give us an overview of that technique? Yeah, so EMDR is a therapy or a therapeutic technique that was developed in the 1980s by psychologist Francine Shapiro, who was actually a graduate student back in the 1980s. And she discovered the power of eye movements or alternating bilateral stimulation to very rapidly process trauma. And uh, so what we find is, and I'll kind of give you this overview that I give in my lectures, is that um, when a trauma when a trauma happens, it gets frozen in the nervous system, the thoughts, feelings, and body sensations in the right side of the brain. Um, and talk therapy accesses the left side of the brain. It doesn't access where trauma is stored. Well, what we do with EMDR is we light up the memory network where the trauma is stored, and then we add alternating bilateral stimulation. So in the olden days, it was all about eye movements, and we found that other forms of bilateral stimulation work very well also which could mean tapping right, left, right, left. It could be auditory stimulation. It could be drumming. It could be dancing. It could be little buzzers that people hold in their hands that go alternating back and forth. And what it does is it sets off a rapid processing effect. So the information that's been frozen in, in this state-specific form and the way in which it went in with the thoughts, feelings, and body sensations starts to move and it moves at an accelerated rate. So people have thoughts and feelings and body sensations that move very rapidly. And what happens is they move to what we call an adaptive resolution. They move towards health and wholeness. So, for example, if something is felt very emotionally charged, like an accident, like it feels like it's happening now, it'll feel like it happened in the past. If what happened to you feels very personal and self-referential, it'll feel like it doesn't belong to you. It feels like it happened. Um, there's a broader perspective and there's a sense of peace and even self-compassion that arises spontaneously. So we really believe that with EMDR, um, it's a natural healing process that takes us to our natural state of wholeness. Um, and so, you know, as our job as therapists, really as EMDR therapist is to facilitate the processing that our clients hold, have a natural healing system that's just been disrupted by the traumatic experience and with EMDR, we help restore them and kickstart that natural healing process, that natural healing system. So it's it's an amazing therapy. It's very, very well researched for trauma. It's probably one of the most researched therapies for post-traumatic stress disorder. I really love that natural healing system. That still blows me away, the idea that that's in all of us. I think it's, it's beautiful. Um, yeah, it really is. It's very much a humanistic psychology idea. 
And, um, you know, the way I think of it is this way that our true self is like the sun that's always shining. And the manifestation of our true self is compassion and wisdom and empowerment, joy, these kind of essential qualities. But what's happened is that we have experiences that create like clouds that are blocking the sun, um, traumas, things that have harmed us emotionally, and they create kind of like contractions in the mind and the body. And so we don't have that contact with our true self. Well, with what we do with the MDR is we focus on where those clouds are, those places of blockage, of contraction, and we add bilateral stimulation within the context of our the structure of EMDR. And that disturbance just, just melts away. It, 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 it um, evaporates like the clouds. And then the sun is shining and clients' experiences of love and compassion and joy and empowerment. And if they have creative capacities, they're suddenly writing or singing or playing music or painting. So it really allows our true self to shine forth. It's just such a beautiful therapy that way. It's very spiritual. Mm, absolutely. Um, I wondered how controversial EMDR was at the time that you trained. So I was trained in 1991. To give you a context, <clears throat> the first EMDR training that was done by Francine Shapiro was in 1990. So I was in the early the early group. It was it wasn't even controversial at that point. It was like it was hardly even known. So you know, I'm from California, right? I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. We're kind of where the cutting edge stuff comes from. <laughs> and so, and, and we're really open to experimenting and trying new things. And frankly, when I heard about it, I thought it was completely weird. I thought it was completely bizarre. I, I've always worked with, uh, with early childhood traumas, early child sexual abuse and neglect my entire career. And I couldn't imagine waving my fingers in front of somebody's eyes and having something like that work. Um, but it did. I, I, got, I got introduced to it by a colleague. And I saw um, the results she had with somebody that were amazing. And that, that um, encouraged me to get the training, which happened very quickly afterwards. And... I was so impressed with what I experienced in my own practice, my own, my own experience of it. That was uh, material that I'd worked on in the past in talk therapy with EMDR. It, it worked on a deep somatic level that I had not had access to. And so I thought, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I can't wait to use this with my clients. That was in 1991. Okay. So pretty early yeah. on after exposure, yeah, you really. were, you were sold on it. How, how, yeah. How quickly did you recognize that spiritual element, having been already a Buddhist practitioner? Very quickly. Yeah. In fact, I, I wrote an article for the Journal of Transpersonal Psychology about this in 1996 um, called Eye Movement Desensitization and Spiritual Unfolding. Mm. Um, because not only do people kind of clear the old traumas and come to this place of great joy and freedom, but they also have other kinds of spiritual experiences, many of them that I, I documented. And, and then um, one of my students in this doctoral program where I was a, a professor based his dissertation on that article. And he did interviews of EMDR clinicians to see what kinds of experiences they were having also. 
And almost all of them reported this experience of compassion for self and others as a result of EMDR. Mm. It's not typical with regular therapies, Mm-mm. you know? No, no. Yeah, right. Um, how, so you were pretty sold on it pretty quickly. When, yes. when did you become aware that you might do things a little bit differently than in the standard protocol? Oh, immediately. Okay. <laughs> so, oh yeah, immediately. So, so I already was a seasoned clinician with, a, with many, many years of experience. Um, and so in the early days, it's interesting because this is part of what's happened with EMDR. In the early days, Francine Shapiro, in part of her lecture was make it your own. So she trusted us because EMDR was just developing, right? It was just in the development phase. Um, she trusted us to use it with our clients and to adapt it as needed. And so there was a group of us. So I very quickly became a facilitator for the EMDR Institute. So I worked for the EMDR Institute for many years and I was a facilitator and a group of us met monthly and we shared cases and we talked about what we were doing and we shared ideas. And, um, most of us, all of, I should say all of us in that group worked with early childhood trauma, clients who had early child physical and sexual abuse. And we all knew that we had to adjust the protocols. And so we did. We knew that we needed to change the order. We knew we needed a lot more resourcing than just safe place. Uh, we knew that we needed to not use the word safe because that was a triggering word for many people who have never felt safe. And we needed a lot more resources and we needed to really expand the type of interweaves and interweaves are a proactive strategy. The therapist uses to unblock block processing. And uh, typically what will happen when somebody's had early childhood traumas, they get stuck and the the very easy kind of EMDR will things move very rapidly and everything's great will often go off track. And so therapists need more skills and more tools to help clients. And so, you know, from that group, very quickly, we needed to use more imagination. And so um, I brought in, you know, with the influence of my my friends and colleagues, the use of, of resources and imagination for helping with this early childhood trauma work. Could you explain to us what resources are in the EMDR context? Yes. So... So the way I think of it, there are two ways to think of EMDR. Um, so standard EMDR is you, you find where the trauma is stored and you light it up. We activate the image, the emotion, the body sensations, and the thoughts or beliefs that are frozen there. And then we add alternating bilateral stimulation. And that sets off a rapid processing effect that you know, through one set after another, they begin to move to what we call an adaptive resolution. So in order to do EMDR, the client has to be able to tolerate strong affect. They have to feel, they have to be emotionally stable enough to handle it. Um, They have to not have prohibitions against feeling affect or speaking negatively about family members. Often that's something that will block them from really going where they need to go. So a lot of this has to do with stabilization. So that's kind of the way I think of EMDR in terms of trauma processing. Well, there's an EMDR-related technique that I call resource tapping. It's also known as resource installation, but I don't like that terminology because it sounds like 
you're putting something into somebody, which is not what we're doing. So with resource tapping or resource installation, what we're doing is we're activating internal resources that are helpful for the individual. The things we're wanting to cultivate more of. So it might be a peaceful place. It might be, I have what I, I, ha, I use what I call the four foundational resources, the peaceful place, figure, nurturing figures. These are figures, uh, real or imaginary that have a nurturing quality, a protector figures, figures that have this protective aspect, wise or spiritual figures. And what we do is we have the client imagine the figure and really contact the felt sense that is inside of them. So we're lighting up these neural pathways of positive resources inside, and then we're adding short sets of bilateral stimulation. So this is the key, it's short sets. So um, I wrote a book called Tapping In. It's all about the use of this for, you know, that I wanted to make um, available to the general public. And so what we do is we, you imagine the resource, you get a, a full body sense of it, and then you add a short amount. So a short amount might be six to 12, left, right, left, right. So if you're physically tapping, it could be right, left, right, left. You can tap either shoulder, you could tap a table, you could drum, um, you can use eye movements, moving your eyes back and forth, but you keep it only on the positive resource. This is the key that really differentiates it from standard EMDR. It's only on the positive. We don't want them to start processing into the negative. So we keep them only. So what it's doing in my mind is the bilateral simulation seems to integrate neural networks. So we light it up and then we link it up by the use of bilateral simulation. So it's um, a lovely technique. It works. We use it to help stabilize clients Um, it's wonderful in the treatment of addictions. We especially need it when working with early childhood traumas. So we can use a lot of these resources to help stabilize and strengthen our clients before doing the EMDR trauma work. So that's a little bit about what, what I call resource tapping or resource installation. What do you anticipate could happen? And what did you and your, you know, your early colleagues in the the early EMDR field, what did you anticipate could happen if a practitioner didn't modify the standard protocol for someone with significant relational trauma? And just by way of an example, somebody who may have had, you know, a traumatic experience like a car accident that was producing PTSD symptoms, but they also had, you know, childhood history of neglect or emotional abuse. Mm -hmm. What might be the worry about jumping in with the standard protocol in that kind of situation? Well, I think the the difficulty is that we absolutely have to create as much safety as we can. So, so with the MDR, what we're doing is we're working with memory networks and, um, and EMDR also dissolves the dissociative barriers. This is really key to understanding some of what can go awry. So for example, you can be working with somebody who has a car accident and they have no memory have been of having been physically abused, sexually abused as a child. And suddenly that dissociative barrier is eliminated and they're screaming their heads off and they're in a terrified dissociated state and you haven't prepared them. You don't have any resources established. 
you don't know what to do in terms of um, getting them out of the stuck places. And they're, they're really over their head and you're really over your head. So it, uh, for me, creating more safety ahead of time. So part of, let me just kind of describe something about the modifications. So the standard protocol, what we call the standard protocol, has a lot of measurements in it um, that were developed by Francine Shapiro. And a little context, she developed standard EMDR in the 1980s, and then she she did her doctoral dissertation based on what she developed. But it got frozen. It got stuck like that. And that's the same protocol has been used since the 1980s until now. Um, and what we know is that when we're working with early childhood traumas, we need to make sure the client feels safe with the therapist, that they don't feel judged. They don't have a lot of numbers and measurement imposed on them where they don't feel safe. That we're able to adapt what we do to make them feel connected and cared about. And that's what we call attachment-focused EMDR, part of the principles of attachment-focused work. So in, in um, modifying the protocol, and you asked, when did you figure out to modify it? Some of the modifications had to do with rearranging the order of the protocol and eliminating what are the measurements that's called the validity of cognition scale. Most people will not know about this or care about it, but it's a scale that Shapiro developed for her doctoral dissertation that has kind of gotten, gotten stuck in the standard protocol. And it's the part of the protocol that's most confusing, least helpful, most difficult. I've been training therapists in EMDR since 1995. And in the training of therapists, this is the place where all the therapists get, get confused. They have a hard time learning this. It throws them because we're asking how true a belief feels on a scale that they don't understand. Um, so what I, what I did very quickly in the early nineties was eliminate the validity of cognition scale, rearrange the order of the, of the protocol and make it, and then create more resources up front, really set the resources up, up front. So the client really feels safe and they can go into the network without being jerked back and forth and back and forth. So we just found that that worked better for, um, our clients who had already felt manipulated and uh, unsafe in their lives. Uh, one of the foundational principles of, I think, any good therapy, but for a attachment-focused EMDR, is a therapeutic relationship. And if you don't have a good bond, a good connection, where the client feels safe with you, they're not going to go to those deep places with you that are necessary for the healing. So, you know, the modifications are respectful, they're validating, and um, they help our clients feel safe with us. You've touched on the phrase attachment-focused there. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by attachment-focused? Yeah, so so for many years I've been teaching, I've been consulting, I've been modifying, I've been working in my clinical practice. And and I've written several books. And over the years, I've been changing things and haven't really noticed that I've changed things. Um, so you probably know Daniel Siegel. You probably heard of Daniel Siegel. So one of the ways in which I teach is I my favorite way of teaching is in a retreat setting where the, the therapists who are coming to learn are in a retreat setting. And we go over a week 
and they get a lot of their own practice. Um, and I also do live demonstrations with people in the class. So he was working on a book. He attended my class every morning and he watched me work. And afterwards, he began to refer people to me asking for people who did attachment-focused EMDR like I did. I thought, ha, huh, attachment-focused EMDR? What is it that I'm doing that's attachment-focused? And then I was at an Embrya conference in the United States, and I heard Ellen Shore speak, and he was speaking on attachment theory and its application to EMDR. He spent five hours on research and he never got to the EMDR part. But as he was lecturing, I was filling in the EMDR part with that answering that question that I had from Dan Siegel, what makes what I do attachment focused? So as a result of that, <clears throat> I distilled it down to five basic principles. Um, and the other wonderful, wonderful influence is Daniel Hughes. I don't know if you know Daniel Hughes' work. He does beautiful work with families and children. And uh, some of the ways in which he works fit with how I work also. So the, the, first, the first principle is client safety. And this is the first three principles are really for any kind of good attachment reparative therapy. Client safety. So you've got to create safety. And that, to me, means more resourcing, that we're going to create more stabilization, more resourcing. I want to feel that my client has enough on board that I feel confident that they can go into these deep places. And what we haven't really you know, mentioned in this podcast is that EMDR can be very, very intensive. And uh, it can be shocking and surprising at how intensive it can be. So many times clients have very strong emotional releases and uh, we want to prepare them for that. We want to support them for that. And we want to have these resources on board that help them develop more capacity to run that, emo that amount of emotion through their system. So, so safety, really setting up that safety, it's client centered. So what we're doing has to do with the, the needs of the individual and I feel so strongly about this. And another one of my influences is Alice Miller. I don't know if you remember Alice Miller, Drama of the Gifted Child, her book, where, you know, she really talks about what's so important is that uh, many, many people we see in therapy are coming because uh, they were not validated as children. They were not mirrored. They had to be who their parents wanted them to be, to be loved and to not be abandoned. And as a result, they abandoned themselves and did not develop an integrated sense of self. So a lot of our clients are like that. And so what she said is, if the therapy we're doing, and she was she, her critique was on psycho, psychoanalysis, imposes a theory on the client without seeing them, we're re-injuring them the way in which they were injured as children. And so I feel the same way with EMDR. If we're saying, no, you have to use eye movements. No, you have to, no, you don't, we don't, we're not going to do resourcing. No, you have to do it this way or that way. No, you have to do all the numbers and scales. We're actually re-injuring them the way in which they were injured as children. On the other side, if we listen to them, if we say, what works for you, what feels best for you, here's what I'm thinking, what do you think? If we work collaboratively, if we work respectfully, 
then it's reparative. So this client-centered way of working to me is, is so important to me because I think what's happened in our field in general is we've moved towards this idea of evidence-based therapy that really is no longer client-centered and um, it's research-based. But our clients aren't research subjects, they're human beings. And each human being needs to be respected and listened to and cared for according to what their needs are. So part of the beauty of this is together we discover what works best for the individual. Do they like long sets of bilateral stimulation? Do they like short sets? Do they like to talk? Do they like to be silent? Do they like lots of resources? Do they just have a few and that's enough for them? You know, if I'm in a, in a room with them, do they, like, do they want me to sit close or do they want me to sit far away? So we discover together and it's, it's just very respectful. So that's the client-centered. And then the, the third one is, is the importance of the therapeutic relationship. And I just feel that that creates safety. And it's part of this, this repair. It's a corrective emotional experience. The extent to which the, the client has um, a safe relationship with us in which they feel validated, seen, heard, cared for. It's repairing. They're having a new experience. They're creating new neural pathways of a healthy relationship. So that is just so foundational to me is that therapeutic relationship. So those are the first three. And I can talk about the other two as we, as we go along, but those are foundational to, to attachment focusing and, and frankly, to any good reparative therapy. And in the same way, when you speak of attachment, it's not the attachment categories. It's not figuring out what attachment style the client has. It's the the broader notion of attachment and then figuring out exactly what that looks like for each person. I love that you brought that up. I feel very strongly. I, I have a, a, a problem with the attachment categories because, again, you're, you're not seeing the individual. You're categorizing them. I think it's, it's trying to understand the complexity of human experience. And um, some of what will happen to somebody is like maybe, maybe they had attachment trauma because their parents immigrated and they, they were left in one country and their parents were in another. And the parents have the capacity for love and, and caring, but immigration separated them or somebody got sick and there was a, there was a separation or their primary attachment figure was not their mother or their, their parents. It was a grandparent or a nanny or a community. So there's so many other things that can impact attachment that it's not linear. It's not simple. And I think this is really coming to understand what's really going on with this individual. And then, you know, crafting what we do collaboratively with the client to create what they need. I think I've been surprised, not anymore, but at the start with EMDR, how uh, the client could genuinely believe that they fully trust me and are comfortable with me. We could have a good rapport. But when we went into the trauma, uh, some of that, you know, attachment trauma came up and they could no longer kind of feel that, that trusting relationship, which just speaks to spending more time building that trust, resourcing um, allowing that part of the therapy to really take center stage um, before 
Yeah, I, mm. I really agree with you, especially working with childhood traumas. And and I think part of what gets confusing for therapists and clients maybe is the idea that EMDR is a quick fix. Mm. You know, that's, oh, it's three sessions, you're supposed to be fixed with it and, and really not taking the time. You know, if it's a single incident trauma that, you know, was one car accident, not linked to anything else or one dog bite or one thing, and it's not linked to other things, but we almost never get those clients in our offices. It's almost always they come in with something that seems small, but ends up being linked to other things that are much bigger. And so this is where it's just so important that we have a good relationship. We, By the way, I always take a history. I need to take a developmental history. I need to have that context where I understand the person in case the slippery slope opens up into that early childhood stuff. But you're right. I've I've had some really um, hair-raising experiences where we started with one thing and something else really big opened up. And that therapeutic relationship where I could use my voice to get the client back, you know, helping them remember who I am was absolutely essential. To getting through where they where they where they had gotten to. Mm. Okay, so perhaps could you could you explain for us those uh, the last two basic principles that you identify for attachment focused EMDR? Right. So, um, so the the fourth principle is the resource resource tapping. Right. So it's using imagination and bilateral simulation to for. Um, developing resilience, ego strength, emotional regulation, all of that, and preparation for the trauma processing work, providing more capacity for all of that. So uh, we do the four foundational resources, and we'll set that up in a, in a session before we do the actual EMDR, and I see how they do. Um, it's a good assessment, because if they can't find resources, we need to go, we need to do more work there. Um, so we'll use the resources for for the preparation and the stabilization work, but we'll also use the resources for developmental repair. And this is the, this is really the new idea that's been profound. Um, And what it is, is that when you imagine something, it's lighting up those neural pathways. So even if you had no love in your, in your life, you didn't have stable background, your parents were drug addicted, you were in foster care, all that bad stuff, but you can create and imagine an ideal mother or a family that would be what you needed to grow up in a healthy way. And you imagine that, and we add bilateral simulation to tap that in. And then we use imagination to run through development using resources. So um, this is where when we're looking with assessment as to what we do, I'll get the history. I'll hear what's going on with the client. If I'm hearing a horrendous history with so much child abuse, no consistent parenting, I'm thinking, okay. And and difficulty with emotional regulation. They're emotionally volatile. They have trouble self-soothing thinking, okay, we really need to do a redo. We need to give them and fill in what they didn't get as children. And so we'll work to create what they need and then reimagine. And this can take, this can be really the focus of the therapy for a while. And it's amazing what people are able to do, even if they never had it, 
Maybe they've had a pet that they were able to love, so they know what that is, or they've had their own children, and they knew what their 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 own children needed, or they can see it, they recognize it, and they can imagine giving it to themselves. So it it's it's amazing the kind of changes that people have been experiencing with this developmental repair work. So that's the resource tapping for emotional regulation, stabilization, and also for developmental repair. And then the last is modified EMDR. A little bit of what we were saying. In the modified EMDR, I can, I can describe the standard protocol and I'll give you the modified protocol. So the standard protocol, let's say we're working with a sexual assault. We'll say, when you think of that incident, what picture represents the worst part? It's the image of the man's face before he attacks me. What negative belief do you have about yourself? So we're looking for a negative self-referencing belief. And so they come up with, I'm powerless. So then we ask them for what we call the positive cognition. What would you like to believe about yourself? And so the person has to come up with what they would like to believe about themselves. That sounds okay, but what it's just done is it's taken them out of the trauma network and they've gone into the left side of their brain. Okay, then... So let's say they say, I'm powerful. Then it's what we call the validity of cognition scale. How true does that belief feel to you on a scale from one to seven, where one is completely false and seven is completely true? So they bring up the picture of the man's face before he attacks them. They say to themselves, I'm powerful. And then they have to measure how true that belief feels. Now, right there, people get completely confused. And they don't understand what you've asked them. They've already been activated. And again, what I want to remind you is that trauma is on the right side of the brain. The right side of the brain doesn't have linear thinking. It doesn't have numbers and scales. And, um, and it feels like it's happening now. So when you're asking these questions, it so pulls them out of there that they feel confused. And then what you can light up are the shame networks. I'm stupid. I'm not good enough that you've damaged a therapeutic relationship, you've broken rapport, all that can happen. So you've gotten one to seven. How true does that feel? They come up with a number. Then you have to reactivate the memory network. Okay, bring up the image of the man's face before he attacks you. Say to yourself, I'm powerless. What emotions do you feel? I feel terrified. I feel anxious. Okay, how disturbing is it on a scale from zero to 10, where zero is no disturbance or neutral? And, and, and 10 is the most disturbance you can imagine. And it's a 10. And then where do you feel the disturbance in your body? So it's picture, negative po cognition, positive, validity of cognition scale, one to seven, uh, emotions, zero to 10, body sensations. So it's two areas where you're measuring. Um, and then what will happen for many people who have you know, who don't understand the numbers and scales, who feel like they can't do it right. You've spent a lot of time getting this just right. And then you have time to begin the desensitization. Now bring up the picture, the feel the feeling, say to yourself, I'm powerless, follow my fingers with your eyes, or I'm going to start tapping, let whatever comes up, come up without censoring. And then you start the bilateral simulation. It takes much longer to do that. Okay, so with the modified protocol, with our most traumatized clients, we'll set up their resources. So they have, they've tapped in their resources. They've got their nurturing figures, their protector figures, their wise figures, their peaceful place. And then I'll say, okay, what, close your eyes and go inside. What picture represents the worst part? 
It's the image of the man's face before he attacks me. What emotions do you feel? Terror. What do you notice in your body? It's in my throat and my stomach. What do you believe about yourself? I'm going to die. Okay, I'm going to start the bilateral simulation. Let whatever comes up, come up without censoring it. And then we start right into the bilateral simulation. Um, if the client does not show affect, like they're, some people just don't show affect, I'll ask zero to 10. But if they're obviously crying, shaking, they're in it, I don't ask them for a number. Why would I do that clinically? It's not helpful to me clinically. So I just go, okay, let's go. Now, Shapiro had believed, and I don't quite understand this because it doesn't really fit with her theory, <clears throat> that it was important, <clears throat> excuse me, to front load the positive cognition in the beginning in this assessment phase, right? But what doesn't make sense is people arrive there anyway. So as you're processing, and this is that adaptive information processing model, you naturally move towards health and wholeness. So naturally, at the end of the session, the suds goes down, that zero to 10, it goes down, zero or one, and a positive belief naturally arises. And very often, the positive belief that arises at the end is different from the one that they'd said in the beginning. And that can throw them into confusion. Well, wait a minute. Now I'm saying I'm okay as I am. And before I said, you know, I'm powerful. They're not the same. And then they're going, which is what's right. And, you know, I'll just, so I skip it. They don't need it in the beginning because they're going to go there anyway. It eliminates more of that left brain confusion and taking them out. And they just move right in. They just, it's just like they smoothly move right in. And then at the end, I'll ask zero to 10. It's a zero. What do you believe about yourself? I believe I'm powerful, strong, and capable. And I'll just say, put all those beliefs together. We'll put that all in together with the incident, and then we'll install many beliefs. It can be multiple beliefs that go in at the end, rather than one specific one. And then we don't measure it. We don't say, how true is that scale one to seven? Which is, again, you find people will say at the end, I'm lovable. And then you ask them, well, how true is that? <laughs> well, like, oh, maybe it's not. Mm. So, you know, when they really arrive at something, it feels deep and resonant and true. And we don't need to measure it. It doesn't help. Clinically speaking, it's not so helpful. I, uh, having, having just reread Attachment Focused EMDR uh, in preparation for the podcast, I was reflecting on your ability to tune, really tune into your clients. Can you talk about kind of uh, like watching the wave of processing and that, uh, you let them set their own period of BLS. You know, they'll let you know when the wave is finished, but you can kind of tune into that. Um, and I think I'll admit to feeling a little bit like I'm not I'm not sure if I can do that so much. I, maybe I need to stick with the kind of the 30-second set and then getting the suds and um, what is my question? <laughs> what do you think allows you to tune in so well and how would how do you instruct your consultees to engage in that same kind of really close tuning in with their clients, to be able to rely on their observation rather than needing, you know, the, the kind of the set time or the standard question. So, so what I'm going to circle back to, and I don't mean in any way to, to um, 
criticize you. What you just said is not in the standard training. It's not in Shapiro's mm. textbook. There's no counting. There's no certain number of time. There never has been. That part of it has always been client-centered. Mm. Yeah. So somehow, as EMDR has gone into different directions, it's getting taught in ways that really are not what she taught. And this is one of them. There are people counting eye movements all over the world. Like, no, you don't count ever, ever, ever. It's always been watch your client, mm. watch for the breath. So it's like you can see a buildup and then there's a, they swallow or they take a breath. That's got to be in her textbook. It's, that's been since the very beginning. So, um, so yeah, so I'll just say, forget about counting, forget about 30 seconds. That's never been the way in which it was ever taught in a standard way. Maybe it's being taught that way now, but it's not, some people it's five seconds and they're ready to report five. Some people, they want to talk and talk and talk and talk. And it's one set after another, after another, after another. So I think of it this way. I think of the bilateral stimulation like a dance, this part of it, like a the decent, like a dance. And you're learning to dance with a new partner. And it's going to be very awkward at first. You're going to step on their toes. You're going to stop them too soon or you're going to go too long. But you always ask, how was that for you? Did I go too long? Did you want me to stop? And so you, you kind of figure it out and you correct, kind of like a mother with her baby, Right. You know, when do they, how many times do you, you pat them? How many times do they like to be rocked? You, you know, you figure it out and it's, it's messy at first, right? So you just, you just have to be open to knowing you're not going to get it right initially, but you're going to figure it out together. And um, there's some people that are really easy to track because you can see the swallow. You can see the the, the breath that they take. I, um, I've had, you know, a lifelong meditation practice. And so I'm able to really notice what I'm feeling in my own body. And, um, and so often I'll feel a shift. And then that to me is a signal to stop, stop the bilateral simulation. But often the clients are the directors. They, they get the feel for it. They feel when they finish something and they really want to report. And so that's part of it. We just get into that flow. Of, of what that is and when they want to report. So it's, it's an art and it's completely perfectly imperfect, right? It's as this kind of dance between therapist and client. And the beauty of this is you really want to communicate with your client to let you know what feels good, what doesn't. Did I go too long? Did I stop you too soon? Yeah. Does that, does that help you with yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was wondering whether you had an all-time favorite case example of using attachment-focused EMDR. Oh, gosh. It's so hard to think of a all-time favorite. Gosh, I've seen so many people over so many years. I'm trying to think of... Well, there's a there's a case example of a and it's a video that I've been showing. Um, so it's really it's just he's more in my mind, um, and it's a uh, he's a he was raised Orthodox Jewish. He's gay. He couldn't be gay. He was not allowed to be gay. He uh, was a man in his thirties. 
He knew from the time he was four years old that he was gay. He was sent to Israel twice for conversion therapy, where they tried to make him heterosexual uh, horribly. Mm -hmm. Um, And he just decided to pretend that he was. Because if he didn't, he would lose his entire family. He would lose his entire community. He'd be cast out. So he tried. He pretended. He married. He had two children. And, um, and then it just got to the point where he couldn't take it anymore. And he felt like he was not, he wasn't being the husband that his wife needed him to be. He loved her. I mean, they loved each other. They really had a loving friendship, but he was, he was a gay man. That's who he was. So, um, when I saw him and he was a demonstration I did in one of my classes and we videotaped this work, that's why it's very much on my mind. Uh, he wanted, he was in terrible conflict. He felt terribly guilty. He felt like a bad person. Um, he was living kind of, and he hadn't really fully come out into, he was in, he was out, but he like, he had hadn't lived as a gay man in the world. He had, been living as a straight man, pretend he'd been living as a gay man, pretending to be a straight man. So now he was out dating. How do you do that? (laughs) The whole thing. It was like, he was a kid, but really feeling guilty and very feeling very confused. So we started with the resourcing and uh, because he felt he had so much trauma from this indoctrination and the conversion therapy and how his family treated him that we decided to create um, ideal, ideal family, ideal parents to do, to do a developmental redo. So he created, and he was so, oh, we had a good rapport. So, so he picked two mothers. He picked Lily Tomlin and Ellen DeGeneres as his moms. You know who I'm talking about? Yeah. And he picked a gay dad. So that's who we wanted to raise him. So he, um, we tapped them in. So he imagined, you know, each of these figures and it was Lily Tomlin as Gracie from Gracie and Frankie. Or is it? No, it's Frankie. She's, I forget which character, you know, Gracie and Frankie, that, that show. No, I think it's Frankie. I think it's Frankie. (laughs) (laughs) You know who Lily Tomlin is, right? I do know who Lily Tomlin is. Yeah. 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 So anyway, it's her, it's that particular character. So so he imagines, so he imagines her and he taps her in and he imagines Ellen DeGeneres and he taps her in. Um, and then he imagines this gay dad and he taps him in. And then we start reimagining his development. And um, he started, you know, with the two moms and the dad and then the dad. So he's, I'm tapping as he's imagining, I'm tapping as he's imagining the dad does a lot of the nurturing in the early part of, of the childhood as he's doing going forward kind of as a movie. And then when he gets to the adolescence, it's really Ellen he needed, I think, in adolescence. So he brings her in and she guides him and she helps him. And um, so this developmental repair was really beautiful for him and it was giving him what he needed. And then, you know, that was probably as far as we got in this session. And then it was like, okay, now how do you do this? How do you well, that's the next part of his, his growth and development is, is connecting to other people who have also made this transition um, and uh, feeling good about himself as a human being, that who he is is, 
it's beautiful and fine that he didn't do anything to harm anybody. And I think with this developmental repair, it really brings that in for him. So it's using imagination to give a lived experience of having been nurtured, accepted for who he is, loved, supported, guided, which then he's got in his nervous system. He takes that away in his nervous system as a, a real uh, a real change, a new pathway. Exactly. Oh, you, you so beautifully described that. And, you know, he knew what a child needs because he was a dad himself to his, his son and his daughter, and he's a wonderful father. So he could just take that, those qualities that he already has inside, <clears throat> but give them to himself in these different ways. And that's just, it's really, it's really linking in through imagination, um, this developmental repair of, of love and compassion and that who you are is fine, is good. Mm, it's beautiful work. Laurel, I want to thank you for your time today, but also the work that you do and the passion and energy you've put into healing our most vulnerable people and for taking your message around the world as well. Um, it's really valuable, I think, to all of us practicing EMDR and and also not practicing EMDR. You know, you can use the resource tapping outside of that EMDR context as well. If people want to learn more, uh, they can access your books, which I mentioned earlier in the introduction. How else can people access more of your work? So um, it's parnellemdr.com is my website. Um, I also have workshops that are, pre that are recorded. I have demonstration videos so they can see what it looks like. Um, there's, there's, we have a whole library of demonstration videos and workshops. I've this workshop, the attachment focus EMDR workshop. And I also have a resource tapping workshop. And I also have one on um, what I call rewiring the addicted brain using the resource tapping for helping people with addictions. Um, so, and, and to find a therapist, I know it's hard for Australia. I wish I had more people in Australia. I've been doing training in Singapore now for several years. I'm going back in November to do full EMD, attachment focused EMDR training in Singapore. It's closer to your part of the world. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, and I think, I think the, the therapists that understand how to use this in more of a relational way is expanding because I think this is how, what brought us into the work to begin with is that we want to be relational. We want to stay connected to our clients. We want them to feel safe. We want to do this deeper work. And um, in, the, in a way, this provides that validation and support for therapists to do what they, what they already know to do. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. enjoy the show and that you'll join us again soon for another conversation from the wide world of clinical psychology. Please subscribe to Clinically Thinking so you don't miss the next episode. You can also follow us and interact with our Facebook page. You may like to share feedback, comments or questions about the topic we've just listened to or even leave a suggestion for someone you'd like to hear from in the future. Until next time, I'm Dr. Lisa Chantler. Thanks for listening.